Theology Gals, Episode 6. This is our first in the What Do They Believe series. This is Lutheranism with Pastor Brian Thomas. This podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. All right, welcome everybody to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. Welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Well, welcome to the School of Biblical Hermeneutics. Welcome everybody to Grappling with Theology. What is going on, guys? Shine as lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick Answers. Good evening and welcome to the Conversations from the port. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast. The Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Ten podcasts, one network. Check them out. BibleThumpingWingnut.com. Welcome to Theology Gals. We are a podcast by women for women, and we're on the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. He is the author of Wittenberg versus Geneva, a biblical bout in seven rounds on the doctrines that divide. And this is specifically um, regarding Lutheranism and Calvinism. And Pastor Brian is an associate pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in San Diego, California, which is a congregation of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He is also a contributor to the 1517 blog, and I'm going to link all of this on the resource sheet, his book and the blog. And a reminder that the resource sheet is available on the episode post at BibleThumpingWingNet.com. You can click the Theology Gals tab for links to all of our podcast episodes and blog posts. And 1517 has been very generous in giving us some books to give away. And we will, at the end of the episode, tell you how you could possibly get one of those books. But I wanted to mention kind of who they are and what they do. And they published books with New Reformation Publications, which Pastor Brian Thomas's book was published, published by New Reformation Publications. And um, they have a, you know, a blog. Some of you, some of our listeners are listeners to White Horse Inn and have been for a while. So you're familiar with Dr. Rod Rosenblatt and you can find some of his resources over there. And they actually have a conference coming up in October. Here We Still Stand, which is actually going to have Lutheran and Reformed speakers. So, um, Pastor Brian Thomas, can you maybe share with us just real quick a little bit about you? Yeah. Hi, ladies. Thank you for uh, having me on uh, tonight. Um, I, uh, and this is, by the way, International Women's Day. So, uh, and you're asking me to, to, to be on your podcast and talk about our differences. And, yeah. and um, so I'm going to try to be respectful and in, uh, in light of International <laughs> Women's Day. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just joking. Yeah. I, uh, I've, I've been a pastor for a while in the uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Um, but as a younger man in my early 20s, as I was in college and looking at getting into ministry, I actually started in the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. So I, was, I have some Reformed roots. And it was there through the study of um, really church history, historical theology, that I confronted Luther and the, the Lutheran Reformation and uh, kind of had a, uh, a crisis of, not crisis of faith, but a crisis of where do I stand, where do I want to, uh, um, what do I believe and why do I believe it? And over a two, three-year period, um, I ended up in the Lutheran camp. And so over the years, this was a book that I had hoped uh, someone else would write, uh, as people, particularly family members, friends, others who have known me, uh, had asked, why Lutheranism? And so the book is really kind of a distillation of that two, three-year period of study. Um, both of our traditions um, hold the Bible in the highest of regard. It's uh, not only sufficient, but authoritative uh, for our faith. And so um, 
this particular uh, study. It's just a really a, a difference on how we look at those pastor, uh, past passages that um, where we where we divide. And I think you have an interesting perspective because of your background. And I did a pastoral internship in the Northwest Presbyterian outside of Seattle and was uh, licensed to preach under the authority of another congregation and and their elder board uh, and did pulpit fill. They sent me to seminary and uh, it was there that I, you know, um, changed traditions. Okay. I am currently getting my master's degree at Concordia. Uh, which one, Irvine? Port- Portland, actually. Oh, Portland. online. Yeah, entirely online. But yeah, I'm going to Concordia. Okay, so I have a question for you, Pastor Brian. So uh, one of the things that you spend a lot of time in in your book is um, the differences between the Reformed view and the Lutheran view of five points. Could you maybe um, just elaborate on like, how um, you may see that differently from someone in the PCA, for example? Sure. So if, if I may just back up real quick, um, I, I listened to you girls, uh, gals, sorry, talking about your, the, your episode on Calvinism. That's just a, a frame, frame of reference where you went through those uh, five points very well. Sure. Um, and you mentioned both, both just like Calvinists don't necessarily, didn't, didn't, didn't intend to be called Calvinists. Lutherans, Luther would be turning his grave that we're called Lutherans as well. Um, it's just sort of a label that's been saddled. So I should mention that when I when in the book, when I look at the difference between, you know, um, Calvinists and Lutherans, I'm specifically referring to confessional or traditional Calvinism. Those that adhere to the Westminster standards or the three forms of unity. So okay. as you, you mentioned in your, in your podcast, and I think it's important, there are Reformed Baptists, there are evangelicals who, is, who um, agree to maybe the five points or four of the five points, um, the doctrines of grace, as they're called. Um, my book really only interacts with what I would call true Calvinists, um, okay. confessional Calvinists. And I represent, um, uh, humbly, uh, confessional Lutherans. Uh, just as you have some internal divides, we also have uh, those who've kind of gone off the deep end, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of a narrow look, but it, it made it a little easier to talk about those two traditions, two traditions, um, confessionally. Yeah. Okay. So, um, well, you just want to go through, uh, Tulip, the, the five points? Yeah. 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 Cause I, to be honest, I, I do not know the, the differences. So okay. I, I'm really curious to hear, like to understand this. And, and I would say, you know, Lutherans, just as Calvinists may mischaracterize or misunderstand Lutherans, we do the same, uh, uh, as well, and one of the things you should we you know probably point out for for your, perhaps your Lutheran listeners is that the five points of Calvinism don't define your theology. That's not all you believe, and that's not really even the center um, of covenant theology. It's mm-hmm. something that historically grew out of the you know the the, the Synod of Dort, um, and it's kind of taken on a life of its own. I recognize that, and so for my book, it's not a refutation of the five points per se. I deal with a couple of them, um, and a couple I squish together in one chapter or two. Um, so it's not a point-by-point um, thing. But nevertheless, let's go through them. Uh, the first one being total depravity, the T in TULIP. Um, and here we're, we stand pretty much on common ground. Uh, the Lutheran language on this point may differ a bit semantically. Uh, we often refer to as uh, Luther did the bondage of the will phrase, but the sentiment is the same. And it's essentially that humans are unable to approach God apart from grace uh, because the sinner's will is fallen. They are in bondage to uh, sin. So total depravity does not mean uh, utterly depraved or that you will behave in the worst possible way, but it's a way of getting at the topic of original sin, um, is, which is speaking of sin as a condition of the heart. So when St. Paul writes that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, both Calvinists and Lutherans stand firm that when he says dead, he means dead. And yeah. so uh, on, on that topic, I think we're, uh, we're pretty closely aligned. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U, number two, uh, unconditional election. Uh, Lutheran theology affirms with Calvinism that God's election unto life is unconditional. Uh, we have a very robust uh, doctrine of election, but it doesn't get uh, the... 
it doesn't get kind of front page news in Lutheran theology as it does in, in, in Reformed theology. Right, right. Um, so not even some Lutherans will understand that we have an actual doctrine of theology. In fact, confessionally in our Book of Concord, we have one article in the Formula of Concord, uh, Article 11, and that's pretty much the only place confessionally you're going to read about it. Um, so we would say that God does not elect based on foreseen faith or merit, uh, but out of pure grace with no regard to the behavior of the elect sinner. Um, and, and I'll just read a, a pretty good definition, I think, of, of this, and I think Calvinists would, would, would agree. This is from Robert Preuss. He says, predestination simply means that everything God has done in time to save us and make us his children and preserve us in the faith, he determined in Christ to do for us in eternity. So my salvation is not the result of any whimsical actions or reactions of God, but is of eternal purpose for me. So where we disagree on this point, and the, uh, the emphasis of, of chapter 2 in my book is that uh, Lutherans reject the negative side of this teaching, or uh, what Calvinists refer to as the double decree, that okay. God predestines people unto death, uh, i.e. reprobation. So Lutherans refute the idea of reprobation, reprobation, okay. excuse me. So predestination for us is single rather than double. Okay. And, uh, and, and largely uh, the Calvinist position comes out of, a, of an exegesis of Romans 9. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I spend about 16 pages in my uh, book going through that and back and forth, back and forth, kind of looking at how our, our traditions differ or look at those passages. Uh, in essence, I'd argue that the context of that passage has really nothing to do with election, uh, but God's Old Testament promises being fulfilled in sending the Messiah. Uh, Paul asks, has God's word failed? And the answer, of course, is no. And Romans 9 through 11 is really a, a, a summary of, of history, the history of Israel, to say that God has not failed in his promise in sending. Um, and I argue that, you know, perhaps Reformed writers insert... Uh, uh, their doctrine or concept of reprobation and election into the passage unnecessarily. Um, but that's where we're at. So we don't have a, uh, a reprobate or a double decree, just a single. Okay. Uh, number three, uh, the limited atonement or particular redemption. Um, this is an, It really is probably the, the major area of uh, disagreement, and it's how I begin my, my book. Uh, for me personally, historically, that this was the first domino to drop when I was in the PCA, and I had some uh, uh, a little cognitive dissonance on what Scripture uh, was teaching about the death of Christ, um, particularly the, the scope of Christ's death. Did he die for all or just the elect? Uh, Lutherans affirm a universal saving will of God as well as universal atonement. Hmm. And I'll, I'll just break those down. Universal saving will means that God desires not the death of a sinner, but as Paul says in First Timothy 2, uh, that he wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so when we hear all, all people, um, we meet, simply mean that he means all. Uh, we don't qualify that. Uh, universal atonement or unlimited atonement means that Christ died for the sins of the world, not just for the elect. And that's, uh, again, where we would disagree. So with John, John the Baptist, when he looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, we would argue that world means just that world, everyone. Okay. Um, and you know, th- or where First John is probably one of the big pass- passages there. Christ Himself is the propitiation of the, for our sins, but not only our sins, the whole, also the whole world. Um, and so, I understand that you know, Reformed would argue that you know, if He sent to to die for sinners and and we're not universalists by, by any means. We believe there are, hell's going to be filled with people. Um, but we would argue that he was sent to die for the sins of the world, that his will wasn't thwarted because people reject him. Uh, we would just argue, no, his will, he was sent for the purpose of dying for sinners. That was accomplished. His mission was accomplished. But we, where we would kind of agree is that we would say that the atonement was, was object, objectively given for all, but its benefits must be subjectively received in faith or by faith alone. Um, number four is irresistible grace. Um, I don't really deal with this. I, I, I do a, a little bit in the book, but I don't have a specific chapter on this. Uh, on this point, 
uh, like some of the others, there are both areas of agreement and disagreement. Um, with Calvinists, uh, we affirm that when one is saved, it's the result of, of God's sovereign grace overcoming the sinner's bound will, and it's not in any way the result of a free decision on the person being saved. So even though we believe in unlimited atonement, we are far from being Arminians. Right. Um, um, kind of our own thing. Um, and we, we didn't really get to play in, in your internal fight between Arminius and Calvin there. We were kind of standalone. Um, we also affirm that God's election will always result in final salvation. Uh, in other words, election is immutable. Okay. However, we don't limit saving grace to the elect alone, but teach that grace is universal in scope and intent. And here's kind of where we divide. Uh, Lutherans believe the merits of Christ's cross and resurrection are mediated by the power of the Holy Spirit through the means of grace. Uh, means of grace is just a catch-all phrase for word and sacraments, uh, which is to say they don't come by an immediate action of the Spirit apart from those means. Um, another way of saying this is God's grace is resistible. This is kind of how Luther put it. We would say God's grace is resistible because God does not come to us in unveiled majesty uh, Luther used the term naked. He doesn't come to us naked, but he accommodates himself to our human condition by using the tangible means of grace. So he comes to us clothed in the preached word, the red word, through baptism, communion. Um, and a couple of the examples I would use would be Matthew twenty three thirty seven, where Jesus is looking out over Jerusalem. And he says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Um, again, as Stephen's being martyred in Acts 7, he says, you, stu you stubborn people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit like your ancestors did. So we argue that God's grace is resistible. Um, and then uh, last but not least is uh, perseverance of the saints. And on this point, as with uh, a couple of those before, there's both agreement and disagreement. Um, I think you gals would agree that the Calvinist doctrine of perseverance is naturally tied and consistent with your doctrine of election. Uh, yes. the, be the beauty of Calvinism is that it's consistently, uh, um, as a system, very coherent and logical and uh, cyclical. You go round and round, it all makes sense. It's logical. Um, um, we in the Lutheranism would say that's nice, but that's not how Holy Scripture presents itself. It doesn't come to us as a system, and we sometimes have to hold uh, things in tension. Um, and so there are places where, you know, Christ's death looks like it's, it's just for a specific few, the many, um, and there are other places where it talks about being all or the world. And so we, we hold those in tension, recognizing we're probably not going to have a coherent or logical system completely uh, as you do. Um, right. One thing I wanted to say real quick um, is that's actually, um, I spend a lot of time with Lutherans. Um, I mentioned 1517 and my brother-in-law, Ted Rosenblatt, he is um, president, director of branding for 1517. He started it. And I, mm -hmm. a lot of the guys at 1517 are friends of mine. And one thing I have kind of realized is that, you know, Reformed theology is based on a very logical system where Lutheranism, that you guys are, you know, more comfortable with pointing to the mystery when it might not be logical, where it might not seem logical. So with election, you know, believing in election, but not perseverance of the saints, for instance. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I think on your guys, you would say those whom God elected, he will preserve until the end. So mm -hmm. all of God's elect will be finally saved. Um, and it, it emphasizes the reality that it's God who per, who perseveres or preserves the elect in faith. And on that point, we would agree. Um, and regarding monergism, you know, there's agreement there. Lutherans, too, argue that perseverance is the sole work of God, uh, not man. So it's not like in Methodism or Arminianism where, you you know, God did his part, and now it's, we're left on our own to do the to finish the job right. from a from a to z uh the gospel is uh christ's work in us um you know however where we do disagree and that's the last chapter of my book uh is that we confess there are true apostates um that is they're not hypothetical we believe there are genuine believers who reject christ 
and fall from grace. Um, in Galatians 5.4, Hebrews 6, I spent a lot of time dealing with Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 5. Um, Paul gives us a couple examples in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, where he will use, they, they shipwreck their faith. Um, so that's where we uh, would disagree. And that leads us to some differences in assurance and where we uh, uh, focus uh, pastorally. And I kind of deal with that at the very end of the, uh, the book. Hmm. That's kind of a summary of the five points. So, but on perseverance, it's different than maybe the Wesleyan Arminian view that, you know, you, you sin and you sin too much and somehow lose your salvation. It really, it was explained to me that, you know, it really is no longer believing and, you know, literally walking away from the faith. It's not losing your salvation because you, you know, committed some sin that caused that. Yes, correct. That's a good point. Um, it's not like you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out every time you sin or do something uh, egregious. Um, mm-hmm. Again, it's a wholesale rejection of Christ as, as Savior or Lord. Um, and, I, and most of us, I think, who you know, live for any period of time in a, in a church and, and been around people, family members, know somebody, have some personal connection to somebody who's been in the church, been baptized, confessed, and then departed. The question is, was that conversion genuine or not? Um, and again, I'm not, I'm not the one to judge that, that that's Christ's job. Um, but I think we have enough evidence, um, not only empirically from the lives we've, we've met or known, but, uh, I think scripture, um, uh, deals with this subject, uh, but we just, you know, there's just, so, um, moving on a little bit, something that you mentioned in your book, which, um, was in my conversations with Lutherans has never come up. So I was, um, bit intrigued by it. And that was in regards to common grace. And you talk about how Lutherans don't have a doctrine of common grace like we do. Yes and no. I I think the concept is there in uh, Lutheran theology. However, we don't, we don't use that as a category. Um, Mm -hmm. So if we're defining uh, of common grace as that God is benevolent and gracious to all his creation um, unbelievers included, so the rain falls on the just and unjust alike, then, mm-hmm. then yes, we, we hold that that idea. I, I think all Christians do. Um, but we wouldn't put that in the category necessarily of grace, but we would put that in the category of law. Um, that's just where it would find its placement. And, and that is to say that God is in, in his word, and we divide his word by law and gospel as uh, many Calvinists uh, have have done as well. Um, particularly, Michael Horton would be one that that follows that. Um, un, under the law, that's where God is using His Word to restrain evil, um, at, so that there there's not just chaos, but there's order, um, and and genuine goodness can uh, can thrive and prosper, you know, in creation itself. Um, does that make sense? So, yes. so let me let me let me ask for clarification. So, make sure I'm understanding. So, you would say the law. It, are you saying the law acts as common grace, in a sense of what how we would define it normally? I would say where your your theology under the the, the heading of co- of common grace, it would fall under the civil political dimension of God's law. So, we often okay. Lutherans kind of have a funky thing where we. We talk about the three uses of God's law, right. first, second, and third. The first use being the civil, civil political uh, dimension of God's law, which concerns mm-hmm. the laws that in society that govern the outward actions of its populace. Kind of a basic mm-hmm. moral framework. Okay. Um, this might be a Romans one type issue where Paul can can you know leverage to everyone that they they know God. Uh, you're denying him. Um, but, but you can see his handiwork everywhere. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, so that makes sense. We tend to put the concept of grace under the gospel. Um, so law restraining, uh, anything dealing with God's benevolence or grace, uh, mm-hmm. we, we put it under uh, the category of gospel. Okay. Yeah, that makes but, sense. And just to mention real quick, we, of course, emphasize the three uses of the law also. Reform theology, although maybe some different emphasis within that. Yeah. 
So the, you know, a big one is a Lutheran. That's a question that we often get is a Lutheran view of baptism. And, um, you know, as you talk about that, one thing that people ask is, so is this the same as the church of Christ? And of course I know it isn't, but could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Can, would it be helpful to maybe just talk about the sacraments in general? Um, yes. Yeah. Just maybe 30 seconds because, um, I ended up having to put an entire chapter as kind of an introduction to sacramental thought in, in the book because I realized we have an Augustinian heritage, all of us in the West, uh, Reformed, Lutheran, Roman Catholic. We, we're using Augustine's lexicon. We're using his vocabulary. So when we talk about baptism or the means of grace, we're, we're often referring to, we're using the same language, but we often kind of define it maybe uh, in different ways. Um, so when we talk about a means of grace, we're talking about a tangible sign or vehicle that confers what it signifies uh, from a Lutheran standpoint. Um, sometimes it's sign, seal. Those, those terms are used in, in Calvinism. Um, so when we talk about a sacrament as, as a sign, um, I, I use this in the book, and I, I interact with R.C. Sproul quite a bit as kind of my contemporary um, um, sparring partner. And Sproul will use an analogy that's very helpful. He will say, look, if you're driving, you know, down Interstate 5 from Los Angeles to San Diego, where I currently live, um, you might hit, you know, the town of Carlsbad, and it'll say San Diego, 42 miles. Um, that's kind of how the imagery or sign in Calvinism of, of what a sacrament, what baptism, for example, might be. Pointing you to the gracious grace of God, your union with God, but it doesn't actually give it to you in the rite itself. Um, you're not in San Diego uh, by virtue of that sign. For Lutherans, we might refer to it as a sign, but the sign would be, welcome to San Diego, America's greatest city. <laughs> uh, the sign and the thing that it signifies are, are one and the same. They're reality. So if baptism signals union or forgiveness of sins, union with Christ or forgiveness of sins and all kinds of other things I'll talk about, um, it's giving that which uh, it, it it is a sign of or a picture of. So a little different there. And so when we look at the sacraments, we, we do so as, we look at them as performative speech acts by God, um, that he is the main subject doing all the important verbs. Um, so what makes baptism special is not the water. Uh, Luther said, you look, a, a cow could drink out of that. You know, a maid could use it to wash the dishes. Um, what's special is his word. The same with Holy Communion. They're just bread and wine. It's Christ's promissory word, word that makes it what it is. His, his word accomplishes what it says. Um, so the word may be without a visible means, right? Preaching or being read. But the means, whether it's water, bread, wine, can never be without the word. And on that point, I think we have agreement. So baptism. Um, I ask the question, what does God do through baptism as a means of grace? And, um, and I look at uh, passage after passage, basically all the passages that deal with baptism, and I, I, I hone in on the verbs. And um, so I would say for us, baptism makes disciples. This is your, good, your great commission from Matthew 28. Uh, baptism uh, saves or brings the benefits of, of the cross uh, to, the, uh, to the individual. Um, that's Mark 16 or 1 Peter 3.21. Uh, baptism brings the forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 2, Acts 22, and Paul's conversion. It unites us to Christ, Romans 6. Uh, regenerates. This, this often uh, you'll get deferred brow, uh, uh, brows when you hear this. That, yeah, Lutherans believe in baptismal regeneration or being born again from John chapter 3 or Titus 3.5. Um, and then Paul even talked about uh, baptism sanctifying through the washing of, of, of the word in Ephesians 5. So, in short, Lutherans look at baptism in a holistic or, or a life-encompassing manner. Um, and, and maybe an easy way to say it is that it is, an, it is a spiritual adoption rite, uh, both legal and familial, just like in a regular adoption. Uh, legal in that we are justified by God's grace, that there's a forensic declaration of God's word to justify sinners. And familial in that it's there that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit puts his name upon us and claims us as his own. 
And one thing I wanted to mention too, because of course we have a lot of Baptists in our audience, is that you do baptize um, babies just like we as Presbyterians do. Exactly. And then the Lord's Supper, I mean, again, is, is going to differ from our view. Yeah, we both, it, it, the, the heart of the, the difference comes down to the, the real presence. Um, where is Christ um, currently? and Where is he present? Um, I, I have to divide this up into two chapters. Um, uh, and, and the first chapter has to deal with a personal union of the two natures of Christ, because for us, our differences isn't just sacramental, but almost primarily it's Christological. Um, it has to do with the humanity and the divinity of Christ, and how do we understand the, the personal union of those two natures. Um, when we ask, where is Christ presently? I think we both affirm that he is at the right hand of the Father. Uh, Zwingli, Calvin, and other reformers contended that the, the finite uh, person of Christ, uh, because he's fully human, um, could not be located in more than one place or physical place at a time. Uh, the phrase um, translated from the Latin, which would be the finite, cannot contain the infinite. Um, so the question posed to Luther and was, how can he be present at, at my table at Grace Lutheran and at your church, as well as thousands of other churches out there on a Sunday morning where the Lord's Supper is being celebrated? So uh, chapter five of my book deals with the, the two natures of Christ. Um, um, and then I deal with the words of institution in the next one. Um, uh, scripturally, we, we simply interpret Christ's words of institution differently. Um, so I spent a lot of time exegeting what Jesus means when he says, this is my body. Um, now, there's not, what was interesting, I found there's not complete agreement on that in reform circles. So I had to deal with a couple of the more prominent and confessional positions that are out there. Uh, some of the more um, popular and scholarly books, Keith Matheson being one of them, uh, as well as R.C. Sproul and a few others. Um, for Lutherans, it's it's quite simple. We just take Jesus at his word. Uh, when he says, this is my body, this is the blood of the new covenant, we believe that he can actually deliver on his promise, on his word, that we are eating, what we're eating is not only bread, but also his true body. And what we are eating or drinking is not only wine, but his true blood. What we will not argue uh, over is how. Now, we don't know. We're not going to argue uh, his real presence scientifically. Christ is not only true man, but also very God of very God, as the creed says, one who brought creation into being by his word. Uh, therefore, we, don't, we just don't doubt he's capable of delivering on his promise um, and that he can do things with his body as the Son of God, as being true God that we can't do with our bodies. So we're not going to limit him by uh, our standards. Um, one thing I, I will men mention, and I think it's important uh, both for Lutheran listeners potentially, is that there's a lot of mischaracterization, misunderstanding on this from both our sides. And that's one of the things I try to clarify throughout the book, and I hope I do a decent job of that when it comes up. Is Lutherans, because you have a different position on the real, real, real presence, uh, often Lutherans will think that Calvinists will just throw you into the, the same lump as, say, Baptists, which is, is, uh, is unfair and not, and not being accurate. So I'll, I, I go through and I explain Calvin's positions, that you guys actually have a, a real presence, a spiritual presence, uh, mediated by the Holy Spirit. Um, and the Reform writers often... Uh, misunderstand or characterize, mischaracterize uh, Lutherans as consubstantiationism, uh, hmm. which is just, it's just pat patently false. Um, that is a position that uh, is more philosophical, and it was a, a position of the medieval uh, church under Duns Scotus, um, I think William of Ockham as well, that Luther rejected. So um, that's just to clarify. So anytime you're in a, in a dictionary or whatever, you hear consubstantiation, that, that is not the Lutheran position. So how does it differ from the Catholic position? Does it differ, and how? Yeah, so Catholics, uh, transubstantiation, they, they tend to insert, uh, Aquinas did this, uh, and uh, the rest of Catholicism kind of just followed suit, um, particularly as they codified their theology in the Council of Trent. Um, they look at a transformation of the uh, of the elements, so that bread ceases to be bread, wine ceases to be wine, and becomes uh, 
um, the body and blood uh, corporally there uh, present. Um, so they, they have a real philosophical position. Lutherans tend to steer clear of, of philosophy or anything that smacks of uh, kind of human reason. When we talk about Luther, will use the prepositions in, with, and under. Um, but what he's getting at is locatedness, kind of a locatedness uh, uh, of, of Christ's presence there, that when you're eating, when you're drinking, you're still eating and drinking uh, bread and wine, but along with it, there's a sacramental union, unlike any other eating, where Christ is present. You're receiving the benefits of his cross, his body and blood, which is forgiveness of sins. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one thing I want to, so, I mean, I think it's clear there, there is some small, you know, disagreements between, uh, Lutherans and Reformed, Reformed Presbyterian. Um, but I know Colleen mentioned to me that you just have some thoughts on, um, like how, like, like we as Reformed people and you as Lutherans, like how we can kind of, uh, come together or like how, how we can just, discuss, debate our differences and, you know, be generous and kind and honest uh, when we're doing that. Um, I'm just curious, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Like how we can come together with our different traditions? Yeah, I thought, you know, this is more of an opportunity to talk about how, how to fight fair. How, how do we discuss doctrinal differences without being a jerk? Yeah. Um, I mean, you look <laughs> at even over the last political cycle, just how crazy it's been and how, uh, you know, just politically, um, and then also now even doctrinally, how disagreements about the Bible, God, morality, etc., they're not just problems for pastors or theologians, they're, they're for anyone who, who believes, uh, for every Christian, uh, and they're going to happen whether you like it or not, whether it's within a family or within friends, co-workers, and even within a church body itself. So it's important, I think, to learn how to discuss and debate these differences fairly and intelligently. Um, so I, I came up, I, you guys like your five points, so I came up with five points that, <laughs> that could, could, could govern doctrinal debate. You ready for them? Yes. Right. They, yes. Don't, they don't have like a cool uh, acrostic or anything. But, uh, oh, okay. Uh, I, number one would be that I think points of disagreements must be clear on both sides. Um, I, I heard a gentleman come and talk to me about, uh, you know, needing some help in his marriage and when I, when I asked him what was going on, he said, my wife and I had a two-hour fight about whether or not we were fighting. Um, so sometimes we just fight over the most ridiculous things. Um, and I think Christians do the same thing. We can get so worked up, we have no idea what we're fighting about. And so um, we should major on majors, not on minors, and understand uh, what it is that we, we disagree about. Um, so when I contemplated writing this book, uh, I looked at the doctrinal distinctions between our traditions. You know, I had to make a decision. What was I going to write about? What was I going to address? There's lots of little distinctions I could have included, but, but ultimately I decided to get to the heart of the matter by demonstrating that Lutherans and Calvinists just approach the scriptures sometimes with a very different hermeneutic uh, or okay. fancy word for a mode of, in, of interpretation or way of interpretation, uh, interpreting scripture. And it was easiest to prove that by focusing on the topics that we've covered. And I think a reason that, that it actually works and, and why the book has been reasonably well-received by many Calvinists, uh, certainly not all, but by some, was that at least they're in agreement that, yes, these are the major areas of contention for us. So um, areas of disagreement should be clear. Yeah. Second, second point would be uh, be respectful or kind in your engagement. You can say what you mean, but you don't have to say it mean. Um, you have to keep in mind that when you're discussing these things, you're speaking with a fellow brother or sister in Christ, someone for whom Jesus died and loved. Uh, just because you may believe you're on the, the right side of the doctrinal fence uh, does not mean that you are more loved by God than they are. Um, Paul, Paul tells the Galatians, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, and doctrinal error certainly qualifies, since that's what the entire book was being written to address. Uh, he says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Uh, in other words, don't be a jerk. You tell the truth, yes, but you do it gently and respectfully so that the one you're speaking with knows you don't simply want to win a doctrinal fight, but that you actually care for their spiritual well-being. Um, number three, I, I would 
uh, sort of goes without saying, but I'll say it, be honest. Um, so many of the, of the arguments we have in the church are full of sound and fury to steal a line from Shakespeare. <laughs> um, and that's to say, we should never argue about something we know very little about. Um, the blogosphere, uh, Facebook, is full of armchair theologians who, after reading one book um, or hearing one sermon, feel they're qualified to pontificate on all subjects. Um, if you're uncertain about what another Christian believes or teaches or confesses, take the time to get to know them before wading into dispute. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to write my book is that most Lutherans read about Calvinism through the lens of Lutheran writers. And conversely, many Calvinists read about Luther in our tradition through the lens of Calvinist scholars. And that sometimes is a, a, paints a myopic picture. Hmm. Um, that's not that those scholars are trying to mislead. Uh, they just may not have the full picture. So, um, you know, when I was writing, I did most of my study up at Westminster Seminary in their library and discussing some of these things with, uh, with Reformed pastors and uh, professors saying, hey, am I getting you right? Am I being fair? Um, because I didn't want to uh, create more erroneous caricatures or false stereotypes or partial truths about, about either side. And, and sometimes those, those caricatures grow and assume the status of urban legend. Um, so how do you move beyond this? Well, you start by reading the original sources of the opposing side. Um, so Lutherans should, should read Reformed scholars. Um, Calvinists uh, should read some Lutherans, some Baptists. Roman, I'll read Roman Catholics to get to know them, as well as their confessional or, uh, statements and catechisms. Uh, I'll give you one, one thing. Most Lutherans think that John Calvin spoke about nothing except predestination. <laughs> deal with that in the institutes, he, he doesn't even deal with that in the Institutes of the Religion until the third book. And it's not even doesn't even take up that much ink. Um, yeah. You wouldn't know that, though. Got in there and, and actually learned it. So if you're going to move a debate forward, sometimes you have to clear the debris that's been built up over the years. Um, number four, I would say beyond, be in it for the long haul. Um, that is, most of the people you'll have theological discussions and disagreements with um, are people that you have relationships with. Friends, family, coworkers, people you're close to. So don't allow those disagreements to get so out of hand that a barrier is erected to prevent continuing the conversation. And then uh, lastly, and I think one of the most important things to remember, is the goal of doctrinal debate is unity. Mm. You know, Christ in his high priestly prayer prays that his, his people would be one, even as you, know, you and I, as he says, uh, you and I are, the, are one father. Um, so if you're going to argue about biblical truth, and only one person wins the argument, kind of no one wins. Uh, the goal of an argument is to come to consensus, not compromise, but to persuade someone in error to embrace the truth. Um, I'm not saying that's always going to happen. It sometimes doesn't, but it should be the goal and your prayer going into those kind of conversations. Um, for example, I don't expect that everyone who reads my book is going to decide to become Lutheran. That wasn't the goal. Uh, at a minimum, I wanted the reader to feel like I was honest, respectful, and offered a credible argument and critique to challenge perhaps their, their presuppositions. And if nothing else, they at least came away knowing more about what Lutherans believe than they did beforehand. And that mm. we have, you know, from our, from our perspective, a biblical foundation for our positions. Um, I will say that uh, someone on, and uh, you mentioned him uh, uh, in your podcast on Calvinism. Actually, you read, read from him quite a bit. Um, one of my friends that embodies all of this is, is Dr. Michael Horton. Um, I've been friends with him for a long time, a, a long time, and I've I've been writing for I think Mod Ref for almost six, seven years now, um, and been on on uh, the White Horse Sin a few times. Though we disagree on many of the points that we've covered, you know, he was kind enough to read through my book and offer uh, a blurb and a recommendation. Though though he disagrees with you know some of my positions. He's, he's kind, he's humble, he's incredibly smart and engaged, and so he's a role model of pastoral scholarship uh, in the Reformed community that, that we can maintain healthy friendships in the faith despite our differences. Yes, I, I've actually learned that from Lutherans almost more than anyone. My um, 
My husband had the opposite um, track as you. My husband grew up Lutheran. He was baptized as a newborn baby in the LCMS, and now he's reformed. But I spend a lot of time with Lutherans, and they really have taught me that you are able to have gracious conversations about your disagreements. And I'm very grateful for that. And even on the White Horse Inn is actually a really great example of that. You know, for years, they've been able to discuss their different their disagreements, but do so, you know, they're friends and they're gracious with one another. The, Ashley, is there any other questions that you have for Pastor Brian? I don't know. I think he pretty much hit all of our questions. Um I'm very encouraged that just your willingness to engage with us. And I loved your last points about, you know, there's, you got to be gentle and kind and especially being fair with the opposing side. I think we see this a lot in the reformed camp with the baptism arguments. (laughs) You know, we see people being fair and people being unfair when talking to the other side. And I think that's a really great reminder for, any of us from any tradition that we need to be fair uh, when we're engaging with people from just another way of thinking, another tradition. I think that's great. One of the nice things about at least uh, confessional uh, Christianity, that is whether you hold to the Westminster standards, three forms of unity, or on our side, the book of Concord is that uh, those confessions and catechisms are readily available online uh, so you can actually go, and if you want to know what Calvinists believe on a particular topic or Lutherans, you can go and find those uh, pretty easily. And that's a definitive statement uh, for for the tradition, not just an individual author. Mm-hmm. Right, and I and um, Pastor Brian gave me some some more resources other than his book, which I will be linking in the resource sheet. But I also will link the Book of Concord because that is you know, kind of the ultimate source of what they believe. If there's something that we haven't covered tonight that you're curious on. Yeah. Thanks for doing that. Well, thanks for, thanks for coming on our, our theology gal show on international women's day. I mean, yes. Am I the first, <laughs> am I the first man to be on the theology gals? You are the yes. first man. Oh, yeah. what an honor. Yeah. A very first distinct man. honor. <laughs> Yeah, and this is this is actually our first episode in our What Do They Believe series because we really do get a lot of questions. I think Lutheran has been one of kind of the most um, requested, you know, what do Lutherans believe? And you would kind of touch on the monergism aspect. And, you know, like us, you do hold to the five solas, you know, grace alone, yes. faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone. To God alone be the glory. And so um, even though it is a different system, it is a different approach. You as Lutherans are monergists, just like we are in the Reformed camp. Correct. So, well, I really, I really appreciate you coming on. We have to, at the end of our shows, we do kind of a question of the week, and then we answer it the following week. And last week we had a guest host since Ashley couldn't be here. And the question was, what is your favorite place to visit? Do you do you have one of those, Pastor, a place that you like to visit on vacation or anything like that? Yeah, I had the privilege of being a naval officer for 10 years. So I got around the world a few times. And I, I spent uh-huh. uh, two years in Italy. So uh-huh. Gaeta, Gaeta, Italy, and then uh, uh, Malta, the island of Malta, Malta. Uh, which is in the New Testament, actually, um, is one of my favorite places in the world. Hmm. But since I'm in Southern California and I can't get to Malta very often, nor do I have the means <laughs> to do so, uh, I do like to get away to Palm Springs. Okay, yeah. Wait, Ashley, aren't you going to Italy this summer? I am going to Italy this summer. Oh, you're lucky. Yeah, I am really excited. I don't think we're going to Galta. Is that what you said? Galta? No, 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 Malta. It's not Malta. in Italy. It's not in Italy. Malta is oh, a, a okay. little island south of like, there. I haven't heard of that. We are going to Pompeii, though. So that You'll will be it. really interesting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I know that our um, 
our guest co-host last week wanted to know what I think because our family, my husband works for United Airlines, so we fly a lot and then we have a motorhome, so we travel a lot. And, you know, there's, I'm, it's very difficult for me to narrow something down. I love Yosemite, you know, for kind of a national park, probably my favorite national park. We have, we visited New York city this last summer and I thought that was wonderful and really loved Portland, Maine. That was another place I really loved. How about you, Ashley? Um, Favorite place to visit. I think because I lived in Monterey, California for a year and a half, I kind of fell in love with it. If you guys have ever been there. So beautiful. Oh my gosh. Every time I go, I'm just like, wow, like Carmel and, you know, it's just amazing. Um, I love Monterey, um, Paris, France. It's probably like my favorite all time going to, um, but that's easy. <laughs> you know, go to another country like France. Um, so yeah, that's probably it. Yeah. Well, I should also mention probably here in Colorado for a nice weekend trip, Steamboat Springs is my favorite mountain town. So if you come to Colorado, Steamboat Springs. And so I have a I have kind of a different question of the week this week, and that would be your favorite ham. Do you, do you pastor have a favorite ham? Uh, probably come thou fount. Oh, good one. Uh, every blessing. But I, I, uh, the one I sing all year round, even though it's sort of an Advent Christmas hymn is as the father's love begotten. Hmm. Love that one. I find That's myself singing that all the time. That's one of my favorites. Well, Ashley and I will tell you our favorites next week. Next week. Um, And don't forget, um, oh, I forgot to say how you might have a chance of getting one of Pastor Brian Thomas's books, Wittenberg versus Geneva. And we're going to do two kind of contests, one on Facebook, one on Twitter. I will put up a post and... We will do a con- We will pick one person who shares the post on Facebook, one person who person who shares the post on Twitter, and we will be sending you a copy of Wittenberg versus Geneva. So keep your eyes open for that, and definitely check out the Bible Thumping Wingnut page. Click on the Theology Gals tab, which you can find all of our past podcasts, and we will be continuing with these with this series we'll, we will be discussing nct new covenant theology dispensationalism possibly anglicanism and also catholic and orthodox so i think it's going to be a great series because this really does the questions that we get quite often you know what does this theological system believe so I think it should be beneficial. Is there anything else, Ashley, before we sign off? No, I think that's good. I'm I'm really thankful for Pastor Brian for coming on today. Uh, thanks. For- yes, definitely check out his book. Check out our resource sheet on the podcast episode page on Bible Thumping Wingnut. And we'll include some other resources that Pastor Brian recommended and other things that we discussed tonight. Thanks and have a good night. <laughs>